I want to introduce you to Reverend Jose Luis Portillo. Jose Luis Portillo, he's here uh, holding a Bible at the blessing of one of the houses his organization has built. Jose uh, operates uh, in Juarez, Mexico, and his ministry has been caring for the people there, being a missionary and a pastor and a builder, uh, an engineer, uh, for over 20 years, since 1992. Um, I didn't look up how far Juarez is from El Paso, Uh, But I've been there, and I can tell you it's close enough to get cell phone signal and to see the city lights from El Paso, even while you're in Juarez. Through Operation Shelter, that's Reverend uh, Jose Luis's organization, thousands of homes have been built, uh, five churches, a vocational center, a medical center, uh, and all of this taking place in, in impoverished Juarez. I was part of two teams that built homes there, and it was extremely worthwhile, extremely rewarding, but it was extremely hard. Uh, Here's a picture of the scene in Juarez. And the thing about digging in sand is when you make a hole, the sand kind of goes back in there, right? It was was really tiresome work. And even with modern tools like a pickaxe, right? Now, pardon the cardinal hat. Don't hate me. Don't hate me. But even with modern tools like a pickaxe, it was very difficult. And in our scripture, we're going to be reading about people doing similar work uh, about 2,500 years ago. Nehemiah was of Jewish ancestry and has been approved by the Persian king to go back to his native Jerusalem, to his ancestors' home, and rebuild it. Last week, we looked at the importance of foundations and that their first priority was to get the perimeter walls back up that would add to the security and the legitimacy of their ancestral home. And so in chapters two and three, we get a lot of details. Nehemiah's, uh, his nemesis is introduced in chapter two. When Sambalet the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, this being Nehemiah's project, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Sambalat was a governor of neighboring Syria. And so here you can see a map of uh, Israel during Nehemiah's time. Israel's kind of the purple there and Samaria's to the north. And that's where Sanballat was from. And he preferred his enemies to be scattered and weakened because of that. So he wasn't excited to see anything being built up in his backyard. And that's part of what's fascinating about the Bible. It deals with real people in real time in history. Sanballat is also named in an Egyptian papyrus. So we have an ancient source that talks about this same Syrian governor that's apart from the biblical witness. So it's kind of neat to see how other archaeology validates what we read in scripture. We also get lots of details in Nehemiah 3 about what groups of families and, and people worked on different parts of the wall. So there were, there were different portions of this perimeter wall that they were rebuilding. And you get just in chapter 3, it's just all these details about the sheep gate, the inspection gate, the east gate, the horse gate, the water gate, the fountain gate, my personal favorite, the dung gate. I don't know who got the assignment to the dung gate, the valley gate, the old city gate, and the fish gate. And these portions of uh, the exterior all had functions, and uh, some of them have been excavated even in modern times. There was an archaeologist named J.W. Crowfoot, who I feel like was just born to be an Indiana Jones type person. I feel like if, you're, if you go by initials in your name, you can do something fancy like biblical archaeology. And he, uh, in 1927, they believed that he actually excavated some of the old, let me get it right, uh, the valley gate. 
And so in an ancient city like Jerusalem, ancient things have been built up over, over thousands of years. And so you can actually, uh, they believe they've identified portions of this initial perimeter wall that was being rebuilt from thousands of years ago. So when you read all these details in Nehemiah, it gives a grittiness to the book. It kind of takes on the character of the arid, rocky dirt and the hard stones used for the wall. And these details serve to remind us that God cooperated in real history with real people. Now, construction is rarely popular beyond the ones doing it. Anybody ever see some orange MoDOT cones on the highway and think, yes? Okay, no, that's 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 what I thought. Is anybody excited when there's a new development in their subdivision? Rarely, right? Um, and, And that attitude that not in my backyard attitude, that's been true for a long time. Because as the remnant of Israelites return to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild, their work is interrupted. We read this in Nehemiah 4. When Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Again, this is a Sumerian general. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer their sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? So Nehemiah's work is being actively ridiculed and his people are being intimidated. And Sanballat stands as an enemy to the rebuilding effort and a threat to its completion. This is a good reminder that anytime you're trying to do something worthwhile, you're probably gonna encounter resistance. Anytime you set out to do something new, it's gonna be hard. And so what I hope we learn together as we study God's word is that ambition invites opposition. Ambition invites opposition. Right, like going back to school, it's hard. Got a buddy who recently decided to pursue some some second career education. It's hard. Uh, If we choose a path after high school that maybe isn't the traditional college route, That's also hard. Deciding to have a kid or understanding that you are now having a kid. That's hard. Making the decision to not have children and have everybody ask you about it the rest of your life. Also hard. So whenever you're gonna challenge the status quo, don't be surprised when it's not smooth sailing. For years, Jose Luis worked in the Juarez community under the threat of violence very real and present danger. The only question was how much and from who? From 2007 to 2011, the drug cartels in Juarez threatened the existence of Operation Shelter. At the peak of the violence in 2010, nearly eight people a day were dying from homicide in Juarez. Eight a day. He went from building 200 homes a year to 20 because the missionaries that were coming in could no longer travel there because it was so dangerous. Well, then the government sends in troops. Great, help is on the way. Except uh, many of those troops were corrupt and from their website, they seemed to cause more violence than they were intended to prevent. So if Jose Luis would have waited until all the opposition vanished, he never would have started. The same is true with Nehemiah. In chapter four, the people prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. This combination of prayer and action would prove effective. 
The walls were going up. That represented security and legitimacy. But folks were growing weary. This is verse 10 and 11. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. So under very real threat, Nehemiah stationed people strategically at the wall's lowest points. And then he gives them kind of a halftime speech. He says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who was great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. It's helpful for me to remember that many of these people's sons and daughters hadn't been to Jerusalem before this. They weren't born there. They were brought back. There was a lot at stake in this struggle to reestablish the Jewish capital. And despite that very real threat, the work continued. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. And this is a powerful image. We have a, a Renaissance artist's rendering of this picture from Nehemiah 4. Half the people standing guard behind the wall as the others worked on it. With their tools in one hand and a sword in the other. Now, stone construction hasn't changed all that much in 2,500 years. Laying blocks still involves a cement agent and a trowel. A trowel. An angled metal tool to scoop, scrape, and spread mortar. This image from Nehemiah 4 has been an enduring one in history. The workers building the wall with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Charles Spurgeon was a world-famous preacher from England in the 19th century. And uh, he's, he's a, uh, there's lots of Spurgeon fans even today. Uh, my, my friend and pastor at uh, First Baptist Church here in town, Ken Parker, I think I've seen him on Facebook with like multiple Spurgeon mugs. And so he knows more about Spurgeon than, than I ever will. Uh, but his sermons were world famous, Charles Spurgeon. And he began in 1865, he began a magazine publication to make theology and educational resources more available. And the name of the magazine was The Sword and the Trowel. That's what a magazine cover looked like in 1865. This would be like a podcast today, right? Let's put that back up there real quick because I love this subtitle. The Sword and the Trowel, a record of combat with sin and labor for the Lord. A record of combat with sin and labor for the Lord. The image here is that with a sword, we would fend off sin and with a trowel, we would build up the kingdom of God. Friends, what are the things in your life competing for your time and your priorities? What are the things that draw you away from God instead of towards God? In extrovert time, this has been like six minutes. <laughs> I have in my notes, wait, wait. Friends, as we consider rebuilding life, 
in the midst of a pandemic that maybe we thought we were emerging from, still in the process of emerging from? How will you put yourself in a position to be built up by God? Now, one of the ways we do that is by being in worship. So I would tell you, you're already doing good. You're already on your way. I have two pairs of things that I would offer to examine ourselves through today. A little sampler platter for you. Some things that I feel like are, are pertinent for us to be considering fending off and some related things that we need to build up. The first thing we need to fend off is what I'm calling ease. What I mean is the assumption that faith in God will make your life easier. We gotta fend that off because that certainly wasn't the case for Nehemiah. People coming back from a generation in exile, doing their best to piece together a perimeter out of rubble while under siege from all sides. Those were God's people. It wasn't easy. Tough part is in the New Testament, doesn't get much easier either. If you look at church history, most of Jesus' closest disciples, his apostles, were all systematically hunted down and executed. Sometimes I feel like we get this idea that God somehow owes us something. And I know something I struggle with, and maybe I'm not the only one, is that deep down, what we really want most from God is to just make life easier. Make life as easy as possible. Now I have lots of friends in lots of different industries, and, and I know that life is tough for just about everybody I know. So I don't think that being a pastor is harder than being anything else right now. But I wonder if you've had a similar experience. I went to the post office a couple months ago to mail some stuff for church, and they had a now hiring sign on the door. And as I opened it, I thought, hmm. <laughs> mail doesn't have feelings. Mail doesn't have a soul. There'll always be more mail. And then I thought, you know, I haven't gotten a single COVID video update from my mail carrier. That sounds pretty nice. This mindset creeps in, friends, and it has to be fended off like the invader of truth that it is. We read in Romans, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Friends, we gotta build up perseverance. We gotta build up perseverance. We need to stay faithful even in challenging times because the hope we have in Christ is worth the struggle. So when that temptation takes in to take it easy, I hope we can build ourselves up to not choose the path of least resistance, but instead to choose the narrow road of Jesus. So I'm gonna keep showing up and keep preaching. Sorry, post office, not today. <laughs> you keep showing up and keep doing excellent work at your jobs. You keep praying for your family, even when they drive you crazy, even when it seems that maybe even God has given up on them. You keep going, keep loving them. You keep paying off those bills. Anytime you try to do anything worthwhile, friends, you are going to encounter resistance because ambition invites opposition. 
So let's build each other up in community for the kingdom of God so we can persevere through this crazy time and afterwards, we can do it together. Build up perseverance. Now I made a note here not to get too rowdy in that last piece because of the next thing I'm gonna tell you we need to fend off. And that's outrage. I feel like outrage is the fuel that the world runs on, especially online. I looked, I looked at all these articles. I, just, I thought about putting some of them up here, but I just thought it was so sad. You didn't need me. I, I couldn't get outraged about the level of outrage, right? I just, just the irony I was crushing to me. Sometimes it fuels, feels like outrage is the fuel the world runs on. Man, and I, 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 you know, I may see you for four minutes at a time in the lobby. Uh, do you remember that line from the Hulk in Avengers? I'm always angry. I like, that can be me. It doesn't take much to set me off sometimes. Friday, I'm watching the preseason game alone in my basement. And, and after the game, they threw some stats up of our man, Patrick Mahomes, and you know, didn't have the best night, but I'm thinking, it, it's preseason, like who cares? But, and then they said, started talking about, well, has the league figured out Patrick Mahomes? I actually started yelling at the TV alone in my basement. Like, it didn't take much to set me off, and that's a trivial thing compared to lots of other things going on in the world. I about lost my mind, and that was something over something that wasn't a big deal. We established earlier that life is hard, and the past year and a half have been extremely taxing on everyone. Friends, I feel like this long year and a half is a recipe for a short temper. And I wish I could sit here and tell you that outrage was a fruit of the spirit. Me and a bunch of my friends would be saints. I wish outrage was a fruit of the spirit, but friends, it's not. We have to fend off our outrage and we have to channel that often excellent reason to be outraged into something more constructive. James 1, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. It's tough when you gotta preach to yourself. Instead, what I would offer you is that we should build up what United Methodist Bishop Ken Carter calls convicted humility. Convicted humility, that's what we need to build up. So I'm not, I'm not telling you not to have beliefs. I'm a pastor. I got lots, of, I hope you have lots of beliefs. I'm not telling you not to believe stuff, but convicted humility is an attitude that combines honesty about different convictions people have that divide us. And it combines that with humility about the way in which our views may stand in need of correction. John Wesley said, we can disagree without being disagreeable. Friends, I don't think everybody we disagree with is automatically our enemy. And if you do feel that way, then I would refer you to Jesus' teaching on how we treat our enemies. We need to build up the capacity for grace for people with whom we disagree. This is part of living in the kingdom of God and this may be one of the most vital things we can do to have a credible witness for Jesus in our culture. The sword and the trowel. 
Parts of our lives need to be severed. Intruders need to be fended off. Other parts of our lives need building up so that we can stay strong in the life of faith. For Nehemiah, being equipped with the sword and the trowel, it was a matter of life and death. You know, if I was preaching this sermon in Kabul, if I even had the guts to, it would probably take on a different flavor. But we're fortunate enough to be in the position in our corner of Missouri where the image of the sword and the trowel represent for us the opportunity to truly live. Friends, just about anything worth doing is gonna bring resistance, especially trying to build up a life in the kingdom of God. What are you going to youth group for on Wednesday nights? That's coming out of my experience as a preacher's kid being called church boy all my life. Maybe you get some of that. It starts in middle school and it doesn't stop. What? Come to the lake, man. Why do you need to go to church on Sunday morning? Isn't it online anyway? Wait, what? Why are you wasting your time going to, on a mission trip? Why are you wasting your time going to a Bible study? Friends, ambition invites opposition, but don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. That's from Nehemiah 4, verse 14. Don't be afraid. Let's put this up on the screen. Let's read this together. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And everybody said, amen.